Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On a temperate summer's evening on the 16th of July 1910, two shots rang out disturbing the residents of Flat 8B Clifton Gardens, Prince of Wales Road and Battersea. Thinking the shots fired were at a stray cat and not much to worry about, the occupants opened the door to the backyard, staring into the impenetrable black of the evening, but didn't see any cause for alarm, apart from a man vaulting over the rear wall of the yard. Little did they realise that metres away from them, at the bottom of the steps but invisible in the darkness, lay a man who had just been shot in the head, bleeding and still alive, but unconscious. But who was he, and what was he doing there? Today, on Macabre London, we uncover the Battersea Flat murder. started today i just wanted to interrupt to let you know that i'm going to be launching a new series exclusively on my patreon so if you want a little more macabre london then please stay tuned at the end of the episode for a little sneak peek also whilst i'm here if you're new here and wouldn't mind subscribing to the youtube channel or the podcast if you're listening there then i'd really appreciate it thanks so much back to the episode at 17 prince of wales road in battersea Two friends were settling down for supper when they heard two gunshots ring out from the yard behind the kitchen and crept down the stairs to investigate. The two friends were Elizabeth Earl, a drama teacher, and Thomas Anderson, an acquaintance of hers, a kind of stepchild but without marriage. The two had been introduced when Thomas was younger as a result of his father's relationship and they had always made an effort to stay in touch, even when Thomas was older, now 21. Elizabeth was a mother figure to him after his own mother moved back to Ireland when his parents' marriage dissolved, when he was just one, and even though she'd never been married to his father, she saw him and the other children from the dissolved marriage on a regular basis. On this evening, the pair had been chatting for a little while before Elizabeth showed Thomas some redecorating she'd done to the house, which she was very proud of. 
It'd been around two months since the pair had last seen each other, and they were updating each other over supper when two shots were heard in the yard. Creeping down the stairs, Thomas took the lead and opened the back door, looking over the backyard. As he did, he saw a man scale the seven-foot wall which led out onto the adjacent road, and then saw him running away. Thinking he may have been a burglar, or perhaps a man chasing and shooting alley cats, a common pastime in Edwardian London, he figured that as the man had gone, there was no immediate danger to him and Elizabeth. Elizabeth asked if they should perhaps go and see if there was any damage in the yard, or if there was anything to investigate, but Thomas convinced her otherwise and closed the door, and went back upstairs to continue with their supper. A cabman, who was returning home from his shift, heard the shots fired and saw the man breaking through the trees behind Elizabeth's flat, and then climbing over the wall. The unknown man then ran away along the adjacent street and into the night. Thinking something was up, the cabman went to the police station to report what he'd seen. There had been a spate of burglaries in the area over the past few months, and even though, admittedly, it was early in the evening to be breaking in, he thought this may have been someone who was checking back doors or scoping out open windows for later. Police accompanied the cabman back to the address, arriving at around 9.45pm. The property was split into two flats, an upper floor and a basement flat, which had been unoccupied for quite some time. At first, the men tried to gain access through the basement flat, but when they received no answer, they rang the bell for flat 8B. Elizabeth came to the door, and when the policeman recounted the escaping man and the gunshots, she confirmed she'd heard and seen the same thing, and allowed them access so they could get into the yard to see if there was any evidence of what the fleeing man had been up to. The unlikely gang wandered around the yard for a little while before Tom heard the sound of heavy breathing coming from near the steps they'd just walked down. At first he was spooked, thinking it was a dog, so he called out to Elizabeth. Another flat who had access to the yard had a dog, but Elizabeth reliably informed him that she hadn't seen the dog for a long time, and assumed they no longer had it. Elizabeth retreated into the flat to grab a lantern to help with the scouring of the yard, and Thomas plucked up the courage to investigate the heavy breathing. As he got closer, it was clear to him what he'd found. He shouted out to the others, who were now checking out the alleyway behind the house. There's a man here. In the gloaming, they could make out the bulk of a man who was lying in a crumpled heap. Shouting to Elizabeth to bring the light to them, the cabman collected it from her, and she retreated back upstairs. Now able to illuminate his face, the men, to their horror, could see the man, who looked to be in his late forties, was still breathing. He had a graze to his lip and a bullet wound to his temple. This would have been enough to be quite horrifying in and of itself, but the pressure from the gunshot wound had forced the poor man's eye out of his head and it was hanging down upon his cheek. The policeman sent for a doctor straight away, and it wasn't long before one arrived. However, the injuries proved to be fatal, and not long after, the men watched the shot man draw his final breath, pronouncing him dead at 10.20pm. Once the man had died, the doctor began searching his pockets in order to find out who this might be. At the same time, overwhelmed with the situation that had just unfolded in front of him, Thomas stood up and excused himself, saying that he felt sick, and walked around to feel better. The doctor began pulling out items from the corpse's clothing, Amongst his belongings were some letters, 
two keys, a red pocketbook, a length of electrical cord wrapped in brown paper, an empty glasses case, tobacco, a pipe and some matches. When the pocketbook was opened, out fell a business card. The doctor picked it up, held it up to the lamp and silently read it. Making his way over to pacing Thomas, who was still trying to stop himself from being sick, he held up the card to him and asked, Do you know anyone called Atherton? Thomas replied, No, but I do Atherston. The doctor then proceeded to read out the address on the card. 14 Percy Gardens, King's Cross. Thomas's eyes began to glaze over. That's my father! Thomas Weldon Anderson was born on the 23rd of December 1861 in Walton in Liverpool. From a young age, he was interested in acting and took his time to hone his craft, with not only an interest in being on the stage, but also directing and producing. He had all the attributes to make him a success on the stage. He was tall, dark and handsome, and he had a good voice. All the things a theatre star could need. However, there was something that was holding him back, and that was his name. In order to make himself sound a little more like the thespian he wanted to be, he changed his name from Anderson to Atherston, which I think you'll agree sounds a little more well-to-do than his previous moniker. With the name change enacted, Thomas knew his next move would be to head to the bright lights of London to find work. Once in the capital, he easily found work as a jobbing actor before moving up the ranks, where he regularly shared the stage alongside other theatre stars of the day. In one review I found, he was reported as delivering effective work, not a rave review, but he was a passable actor. Nothing special, but he got the job done. As so often in acting circles where there is little time to do much else outside of work, Thomas took a shine to one of his fellow co-stars, Monica Kelly. It wasn't long before they fell in love, got married in 1886, and subsequently produced four children. But the marriage wasn't to last, and the two split just three years later in 1889. Now directing, and regularly casting for plays in the West End and touring on a regular basis, Thomas was constantly meeting a steady stream of actors, and it wasn't long before he once again found love as a result of his profession. He soon took a shine to a young American girl by the name of Elizabeth Earle, and perhaps slightly burned by his previous relationship, the pair remained casual but committed, even to the point where Thomas introduced Elizabeth to his children, and she used to regularly look after them on his behalf whilst he was at work or away on tour. Back at the yard of 8B Clifton Gardens, Elizabeth was now informed by the police that a man had been shot in the yard and had passed away. She said she didn't want to come downstairs to see the body, but the police told her that Thomas Jr., had now been requested to accompany them back to the station for questioning. By this time, and still in shock, Thomas Jr. sat at the police station wondering about what the hell had just happened, but it seemed the penny had only just dropped. He began asking the policeman if the body in the garden was his father, but the police officer couldn't confirm that for him, as he didn't yet have the information himself, only the card in the pocket to go on. Thomas then asked if the dead man was wearing a false moustache, as he didn't recognise him, and thought he had facial hair, but the police officer said no, he was clean-shaven, and the moustache was a graze on his upper lip from the gunshot wound. At receiving that information, the young man broke down, with the realisation that he'd just watched his father die right in front of his eyes, without realising who it was. 
The opportunity to say goodbye was there and he'd missed it, thinking this was just a poor, unfortunate stranger and not a man that had raised him. In the meantime, whilst Thomas Jr. was at the police station, Thomas Senior's body was removed from the yard and sent to the local mortuary. As the body had yet to be officially identified, the corpse was still being treated as unknown. Police, thinking that Elizabeth and Thomas Jr. may have had something to do with the murder, searched her flat for any clues. Inside, they found two pieces of a bullet in a sink and a smashed pair of glasses with some further shreds of glass around, and these were collected. I must say as an aside, these items are never mentioned again in any of the newspaper reports I read, so perhaps this was just sensationalising the account, or that these items were misreported as being inside the home when they were in fact outside. A pair of Thomas Senior's boots were found wrapped in brown paper on the back porch of the flat, and when his body was found, he was wearing slippers, suggesting he'd got changed out of his boots and had put his slippers on. By the next day, the news of the murder was starting to permeate the streets of Battersea. As the rumour mill began turning, people began stepping forward that had heard the shots, and witnesses who were around that area at the time confirmed the sightings of a man fleeing the scene, which matched Elizabeth, Thomas Jr.'s and the cabman's reports. A housekeeper who was on her journey home from work that evening said she too heard the shots, and then was surprised to see a man scaling a seven-foot-tall wall before running away. She added to his description by saying he was about five foot six, thick-set, and wearing a bowler hat and tweed clothes. All reports were similar in that the escaping man was seemingly smartly dressed, and wearing clothes that were far too posh to be climbing over garden walls. Another witness, who had also happened to see the man running away at the same time further down the road, said he thought he may have been running for a doctor due to someone committing suicide. He too had heard the shots and assumed someone was injured, but didn't make any inquiries of the man running by as he obviously had everything in hand. He said he did manage to see his face and thought he must have been around 25 years old. The witness was later asked if Thomas may have been the man he saw, but he said he wasn't. Due to the fact that Thomas Jr. was tall and thin, the description the housekeeper gave also didn't match him at all and as such, he was released from the police station without further charge. With Thomas Senior's body now in the mortuary and still not officially identified, it was left to his two sons, the youngest William, who was just 16, to positively identify the body. Thomas's sister also made the trip to identify the corpse, and with that, it was agreed that this was Thomas Weldon Atherston. Questions began to arise as the coroner was certain to make sure that the body wasn't cleaned or changed in any way before presenting it to the family. It only took moments for Thomas Jr. to confirm that this was his father, but why had he not been able to recognise him the night before? With barely any time to recoup from the murder, just three days later, the coroner's inquest began. The court was packed with people, and amongst those in attendance were Thomas Jr., William and Elizabeth who, despite saying she was feeling ill, still managed to show up. The initial inquest on the 19th of July recounted the events of the evening in brief, but it was deemed to be held too early, and in order for the police to have time to gather more evidence, the judge adjourned the case till Saturday of that week. In the meantime, Thomas's body was laid to rest on Friday that week on the 22nd of July. He was buried at Abney Park Cemetery, and the wake was held at his sister's home. His sister, two daughters and both sons attended the funeral, 
but despite Elizabeth's relationship with the deceased, she was too grief-stricken to attend and instead stayed at home. The family's wishes were respected by outsiders to keep the ordeal small and restricted to just family and a handful of close friends, and unlike many other funerals of high-profile murders, the general public gawkers stayed away. Elizabeth even went as far as to make sure reporters from the paper were well aware she should not be approached by anyone, telling them only medical professionals should be in contact with her during this time. Thomas Jr. helped to bury his father as one of the pallbearers of the coffin and helped to lower it into the grave, even though he had initially not been aware he was watching his father die on the night of the murder. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Now had a chance to say his final goodbye. With Thomas Senior now at rest, the family had the difficult job of the inquest to go through, but at least they had some hope that they may have closure on what had happened. The next day, the inquest began, and despite still being in shock, Elizabeth made it into court. She was assisted by two women and took to the stand to deliver her statement, despite the papers reporting that she looked very weak. She confirmed that she'd been living at the flat in Clifton Gardens on her own for around eight years. This happened to coincide with the first time that she met Thomas. Previously, her mother had lived at the property, but after her death, Elizabeth remained in the home and continued living there. Elizabeth was a drama teacher at the Academy of Dramatic Arts, but when she first met Thomas, she was on tour. Away from home and seeking comfort after her mother's death, and Thomas after his divorce, the two struck up a relationship. Elizabeth told the jury that the pair were on intimate terms up until a few months ago, and that they had an understanding where Thomas could stay at her home any time he pleased. On the day of the murder, she'd received a postcard from Thomas Jr., who had asked if he could come over for dinner, so she replied and said of course he could. The last time she'd seen Thomas Jr. was about seven weeks prior, when he and his father had visited her place for dinner, so she thought it would be nice to have a catch-up. Elizabeth confirmed that they'd sat chatting in the living room at the front of the house from Tom's arrival at 8.40 until about 9 o'clock, and then she showed him the decorating she'd previously carried out before they took supper in the kitchen. She also recounted hearing the shots, seeing the man fleeing over the wall, and all the bits of info you've already heard. When questioned about her relationship with Thomas Sr., Elizabeth was honest in making sure she told the truth of what really had been going on between the pair. This must have come as a shock to the two boys who were sitting in court, as she'd managed to keep the details private, assumingly in order to protect them from their father's foibles. 
She said she'd become increasingly annoyed at Thomas Senior due to him being quite jealous of her. He didn't like her teaching drama to pupils at home, so much so that she'd had to give up extra tutoring outside of work as a result of his behaviour. About eight weeks prior to his death, Elizabeth came home from work to find Thomas in her home. He'd let himself in while she was at work and then proceeded to sulk the whole time he was there. He stayed over that night and seemingly stewing in his own juices, he couldn't contain his anger any longer. The next morning at the breakfast table, Thomas argued with Elizabeth, saying she had other men over at her flat. He said he'd even seen one of them sitting in the room while she was there. She said that was completely untrue, but before she could say any more, he hit her. She screamed for help and ran to a nearby park to get away from him. When she returned home that day, he had left, and a few days later, when she came home from work, she'd found that once again he'd let himself into the property, but this time he'd left his key behind with a note that read, I am very sorry I hurt you. Very sorry. Of course you could but deny that was the ground you were forced to take. It's important here that I remind you that on the night of the murder, two keys were found on Thomas's body. One was to his home in King's Cross, and the other was for Elizabeth's flat. Even though he returned his key, he seemingly still had a spare. Around two years previously, Thomas had been run over by a speeding car, which left him with a head injury. And ever since that accident, Elizabeth said his character had changed. That's when the jealousy started to appear. Before then, they'd been fine with just having a casual friend-with-benefits relationship, but after the accident, he'd become more intense. However, it's possible that he'd always had a jealous streak, as his estranged wife was also said to have had many a quarrel with him over his envious tendencies. Police also reported that inside the red notebook that was found on his corpse, Thomas had written several notes that confirmed these tendencies. The jury were told the details of the notebook were far too lurid and detailed to read out in public, particularly with his children in attendance, and also as to not unnecessarily embarrass Elizabeth. The Little Red Book was reported to have contained illicit details of the pair's relationship, alongside other notes which were said to be far too revealing to read out without the deceased being there to defend himself. Both sons testified that they had no idea that Elizabeth and their father had separated, and he'd never passed on any such information to them. Alongside the notebook, a lead was found in the form of footprints which were by the wall in the yard. Using the deceased's boots that were found in the back porch, the police tried to match the prints, but they didn't fit. It's unknown if they tested anyone else's boots, but no conclusions were drawn from this vital piece of evidence. Another item from Thomas's pocket which wasn't uncovered on the evening was a tram ticket, which, according to the time upon it, suggested that he had been in Battersea since the morning that day, perhaps waiting in the yard of the flat to catch Elizabeth's fictional fancy man leaving the home. It was later discovered that there was some incriminating evidence written in the red pocketbook found on Thomas's corpse, which read, Watched the house until 11.30, when the lights were turned out, found a bunch of flowers in the ash bin. And the note, If he had kept away from her, if he had broken from the spell of her fascination and remained out of reach, this would never have happened. He has no one to thank but himself. We all reap as we have sown. The letters also found in his pockets featured a few names of men he suspected were courting Elizabeth, but they bore his home address. Perhaps he was writing as Elizabeth and trying to solicit details from her friends. 
Once again, the inquest was adjourned due to lack of evidence, and the police were given even more time to investigate the leads the inquest had thrown to light. At least this gave the family some time to recoup, and seeking some much-needed rest, Elizabeth went away on a holiday to France. Upon her return, she notified the police she'd be moving to Australia to live with her brother once the case was over in September, seemingly wanting to escape the horror her London flat now held. When the inquest picked up again on September the 17th, Thomas Jr. took to the stand to give his evidence. The one thing that stood out from the case in court was Thomas Jr.'s inability to identify his own father on the night of the murder. After all, if he'd stood there for almost half an hour with the man whilst he slowly passed away in front of him, surely he would have been able to tell it was his dad. In Tom's defence, he said he'd try to not stare at the body, as he was quite disgusted by it. He successfully managed to only take a few glimpses, despite the face being lit by a lantern. The coroner did say that despite this, he should have been able to tell it was his father, but Tom said the last man he expected to see that night at Elizabeth's was his dad. It's not known why this was, but perhaps he'd been told he was away somewhere or performing that evening, and so wouldn't have been in London. The coroner also explained that the wounds on the body included close-range gunshot wounds, so whomever murdered Mr. Atherston meant to do it. The type of bullet retrieved from the gun was known as a soft-nosed bullet, the kind used for killing large game. Now, for those of you that don't know about bullets, myself included, this is a bullet that once in contact with its intended target expands. This means the diameter of the hole it makes continues to spread, this may have been why Thomas's eye was pushed out of its socket, as the pressure increased after the bullet entered his skull. Alongside this, there were fingernail marks on his face and wrists, suggesting that a violent struggle had occurred. The coroner made sure to mention that Thomas was also quite muscular, which meant whoever fought him would have had to have been stronger, or maybe younger, than he was. Thomas Jr. also made sure to say he'd done some research into the note which had been presented from the Red Notebook. When looking through his father's belongings at his King's Cross home, he found the quote in a magazine his father had been reading. The quote came from an article in the Smart Set magazine, and had been traced word for word, but it didn't contain anything to do with surveying a house or snooping through the bins, so this was seemingly incriminating evidence. In an anti-climax, the police officer in charge of the case said he'd felt the force had made all the necessary inquiries and was satisfied that anyone known to Atherston, Elizabeth and the two boys had nothing to do with the murder and a verdict of willful murder against an unknown person was delivered and the case was closed. It's very hard to think that the case was investigated to its fullest extent. All of the people in the aforementioned letters found on Thomas's body were simply asked where they were on the evening, and alibis were seemingly accepted with little investigation. If Thomas had become a nuisance to Elizabeth and was now threatening her, perhaps the two sons did know of his behaviour. Maybe, just maybe, protecting Elizabeth as their mother, they worked together to murder their father in order to save her. After all, if they'd found out he was stalking her, they may have known he had far more violent intentions than just hitting her. What was never revealed in the Red Pocketbook may have well explained this, and the boys may have read it. It may not have said he would explicitly murder her, but perhaps the sons put two and two together. 
This would certainly make for a good alibi, as William, who was the shorter and stockier of the two brothers, could jump over the wall and escape and run to somewhere else, giving him an alibi before the police arrived at the flat. Or perhaps Thomas Senior had decided to murder Elizabeth with the electrical cord found in his pocket by strangling her, but also took a gun to scare her or the fictional man she had at her flat, and had planned to sneak in that evening, hence changing to slippers. He could have then encountered someone walking along the back lane and thought this was someone leaving Elizabeth's flat and decided to threaten him with the gun, but it went wrong and he ended up being hoisted by his own petard. With today's modern forensics, it's no doubt that the murder mystery would have been solved fairly quickly, but back then the science just didn't exist to be able to track down the responsible party. At the time when Thomas was murdered, all interest was pointed towards the cause celebre of the day, the Dr. Crippen case, and the murder of Atherston's once stagemate Belle Elmore. As the Crippen case was more interesting and had the excitement of the alleged murderers being on the run, and also a scandalous affair with the young Ethel Leneve, little attention was given in trying to solve Atherston's case. Whatever did happen, the case still remains unsolved to this day and as such, it still features on lists of unsolved London murders, meaning the mystery will always remain. There is no doubt that the full attention that was needed to solve the case was never given by those in charge, and postponing the inquest a few times over would have definitely allowed for vital evidence to have been removed or even destroyed, making it almost impossible to track down the individual or group responsible for leaving the family without proper closure. One thing that was never fully revealed was the contents of the Little Red Book. Perhaps inside, there was evidence which incriminated the sons and pointed the finger at them, but for their safety, and in an act of kindness to them having done potentially the right thing in saving Elizabeth, this was never passed on to the jury. After all, the details were not read out in order to protect Elizabeth and the boys. Whatever was inside its pages may have well held the answer, but whatever that may be, we shall never know. Thank you for joining me for that episode. Now, before you disappear off, I just want to let you know about a new series I'm starting on my Patreon. And also, I'd love to hear your theories about Thomas and Elizabeth in the comments on YouTube or on my social media if you're listening to the podcast. Now for that new series. Quite often when I'm researching these cases, I come across lots of interesting articles in old newspapers, which wouldn't be long enough for full episodes, and I find them fascinating. And I thought you would too. So once a month, I'll be putting out a video on my Patreon, going over these articles, and adding my thoughts. Sort of like a reaction video, but for old historic newspapers. And here's just a sample of what you could be hearing on these episodes. Found bed less strenuous. Although able to earn 36 shillings a week as a blacksmith, William Jones of Kilburn Park Road, Kilburn, preferred to stay in bed for a week at a time, sending out for beer and tobacco meanwhile. At Willsden today, he was sentenced to three months hard labour for neglecting his children. Number two, lottery winner's bad luck. A railway employee who had won the first prize in the lottery became entitled to a sum of 150,000 lira and set out for Rome from Florence to claim the money, taking with him his lottery ticket, 
During the journey, however, the winner, a man in very humble circumstances, had the misfortune to lose the ticket, without the production of which he could not, of course, claim the prize. And the unhappy man, realising that a considerable fortune had thus slipped from his grasp, completely lost his reason, and will have to be contained in an asylum. The prize was handed to the second winner, Miss Trellini, the daughter of a professor of music. So if that sounds interesting to you and you'd like to see those extra videos on Patreon, then you can sign up for as little as $1 a month, which is about 75p a month, give or take a bit, and get an extra video a month, plus all the other content I post over there as well. And I'll pop the links in the description and also the show notes as well. And I'll pop the links in the description so you can easily access that if you want to check it out. If you don't want to sign up to Patreon, no worries at all. Subscribing, liking and commenting on the video is free, as is telling your friends about the show. And it's always so nice when I see you guys doing that. So thanks very much. And if you're listening to the podcast, then pop over to YouTube because I'm always chatting in the comments over there. So it'd be lovely to talk to you about this case. Now, in other news, I've been on two other podcasts this month, so you should definitely check those out. One is the fantastic What's Her Name podcast, where I'm discussing the amazing Helen Duncan, the last convicted witch during World War II. And also, I guested on the incredibly wonderful and cosy Old Factory podcast, which is definitely my new favourite show out there. And I discussed how the smell of fake smoke in a roundabout way got me sitting here chatting to you today about spooky history. So do please go and check both of those out. Links in the description, as usual. Huge thanks to our Patreon executive producers, Barry, Sam, Sarah and Veronica, and all of our other patrons as well. And if you'd like to support the show without signing up to a regular commitment, then I also have the ACAST supporter link and the PayPal donation buttons in the description too, if you'd like to leave a tip. It was my birthday last week, so if you want to donate a bit so I can buy a drink when the pubs reopen, then you'd be an absolute legend. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Drews, and I'll see you ghouls next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.